We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Architecture has historically been dominated by men. Today, when it comes to gender equity in the architecture workplace, there has been about as much progression as any other office-based industry. But there are a lot of people working to highlight better gender equity practices so that the social fabric of architecture can begin to align with the forward thinking and progressive work that architects do every day. Over the next five episodes, we're going to be talking to building environment professionals about gender equity and how women experience the architecture and construction space as our cultural awareness shifts beyond the elementary family model. Our guest in this episode is architecture academic, critic and advocate Naomi Stead. At the time of recording, Naomi was the director of the Design and Creative Practice Enabling Capability Platform at RMIT in Melbourne. Naomi was also a founding member of PALA, one of the most successful research-led community groups that focuses on the active exchange of women, equity and architecture in Australia. Naomi shares the origins of PALA, mental well-being in the architecture profession, and the issues facing architecture education and making sure architecture graduates are prepared for practice. I'll now hand over to Kimberly Huey, who is an Imagine representative based in Victoria. Let's jump in. Naomi said, thank you so much for joining me on the Hearing Architecture podcast, where we just talk about your experience with regards to gender equality, as well as stepping into the mental well-being conversation, which I think is very important and quite prevalent in our industry and not just our industry, but with all industries today in our field. And I guess we'd like to hear a bit about your experiences as well. So perhaps before I begin, may I please get you to briefly introduce or tell us about how the issues of gender surrounding architecture as well. How did this catalyze or how did this manifest in the world of architecture? Okay, so I became interested in that topic many years ago because, I, you know, I'm trained as an architect like everybody else is, you know, five years of very intensive training. And when I was studying, I was reading these kind of amazing feminist theorists who had come out of the 80s and 90s, which was really a high point of discussions of gender and architecture, also sexuality and architecture, sexuality in space, actually, interestingly. But then it had seemed to really drop away, completely drop away, And, you know, nothing had happened for, you know, at least 10 years, maybe even 20 years. But it seemed to me that the kinds of issues around gender equity in the profession were clearly still there. And there were, you know, it wasn't an issue that it just could just be dropped like a hot potato. And also it was frustrating to me that there had been really good research done. For example, a kind of landmark study by Paula Whitman called Going Places, the Career Progression of Women in Architecture, which was an Australian study a primary study which had interviewed a lot of people. It was excellent piece of work. It contained recommendations for how the profession could become more equitable. And then it just dropped like a stone and, you know, nothing had really happened. So it just seemed, and then very sadly, Paula had become ill and subsequently died. And so she was unable to carry that on. But it seemed to me that somebody had to pick it up and take up the baton. And so 
in, gosh, when was this? I guess it was 2009, I started to kind of put together a team to do more comprehensive research around this topic and take up that work that had been done earlier. Was this the beginning of Parla then, like this research, or was this prior to Parla um, happening then? Well, Parla was never planned. Parla was never intended to happen. (laughs) It was a kind of happy accident as a result of a research project, a scholarly research project, which was funded by the Australian Research Council. So we were doing scholarly research, but then what we realised was that what was missing was that kind of translation bit where you take the research and then you put it to work in the world. And so we thought, oh, well, we need a website. (laughs) But working with Justine Clark, who, as you know, is a kind of amazing individual, like made incredible contributions to the architecture profession and discipline in Australia. And she was like, oh, no, 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 we need more than a website. Or, you know, like we need a website which is building on Web 2.0 interactive possibilities and which is not only a way to share our findings, but also to gather information and to catalyze a community around that. So that's how Parler came about. Initially, it was a website to, as I say, both share the research findings and bring in new information. But then, of course, it became so much more than that. And of course, now everybody thinks of it as the Parler project. But it did start with a scholarly research project. Yeah, I think for me, when I was first listening, because yesterday I was listening again to the lessons learned from Paula between you and Justine, it was a lovely conversation. And I loved Justine's way of saying it was a comedy show. So that was a beautiful, it was just beautiful to see that friendship. And I was curious about like the collaborative process about how did it spread out the tracking app? Because it was within my radar when I was in uni, but it didn't fully come into my radar, perhaps not until after I was out of architecture education and then just seeing it happen. And I would like to gauge on your experience with that and your reaction to how it expanded through over time. Well, yeah, I'm thrilled that it's been so successful. I mean, it's been stunningly successful in terms of international impact and changing the conversation in Australia, giving rise to or at least supporting a whole lot of other cognate groups and, you know, either it's just coincidence that Parler was at the forefront of a complete resurgence of the conversation internationally, or it helped to catalyze that conversation internationally. I don't know which one's the case, but nevertheless, I'm just delighted that it was so effective and that, you know, as I say, that research really was put to use in the world in a way that was useful and a force for good, because, you know, basically I'm not interested in doing things that are not a force for good, for benefit to people you know, my architecture is my people and I'm interested in the people of architecture. Of course, I'm interested in the products of architecture as well, but I'm particularly interested in the people, by which I mean the people who are producing the work as well as the people who are using buildings and the built environment. So that's my particular interest. And if you can have, you know, make things better for those people, then fantastic. That's the aim. So I didn't answer your question about the collaboration, but, you know, that's also a great pleasure, you know, in your working life as you travel through, you find people that you like to work with, want to work with, work well with, and that you're very complimentary with. I mean, of course, there are heaps of people that you don't want to work with and that are awful to work with. Uh, And I highly recommend avoiding those people at all costs. But when you do find a good combination, and I think Justine and I in particular are a very good combination, like extremely complimentary skills and, you know, a lot of mutual respect there. So, it's one of the great pleasures of working life to find good collaborators and, you know, be able to be more than the sum of your parts together. Yeah, because I think from that, just even, as you say, like that lovely outcome of it, for me personally, I loved how there was that community aspect to it. 
myself because from there I was able to make a couple of friends just especially through those Zoom <laughs> sessions on the parlor light at the end of the tunnel which I think was quite lovely as well and perhaps we'll go into different scales of your experience so we'll start off with locally your experience with locally and internationally what has that been for you as well so from the beginning of it to now has how has that progressed well, I guess the work that we did with Parlour initially was very much focused on the Australian context. And, you know, it's it's research-led advocacy, so it's based on data. And we had data on the Australian context and not on any other context. So that's where we started. But there are a lot of commonalities between the Australian, US, UK, Canadian, New Zealand, Anglophone world. So our work was increasingly taken up as a kind of model for other organisations to look to and not necessarily, they, they didn't necessarily want to do the same things. Like there are other international organisations that are much more activist than we are. And there are others that have, you know, they're not research-led, you know, da-da-da-da-da. So the work has been taken up internationally because it's useful, I guess, and people want to translate it into their own context. Well, it's nice to see that catalyst effect because then it comes down to that lovely circle of going back to taking up that research that was unfortunately dropped, as in your words, like a hot potato, and to now see it manifest further on. And I think because, how do I say, the effects of social media as well as, politically speaking, bring on that Me Too movement as well, and then therefore your research and other voices have been magnified and amplified throughout. So then therefore it does make sense for it to be carried across internationally as well. So because of this, as you said, it is research advocacy, like what else would you like to have add more to it? Because before we go into your venture into the mental wellbeing conversation, like is there anything you'd like to add to it as you move on to your next venture? Yeah, well, I mean, it's not, I think one of the mistakes that sometimes people make when they become involved in gender equity questions is they think, okay, we're going to be able to solve this. If we put, you know, the right people, the right resources, the right energy, the right zeal to work on this question, well, we'll be able to knock it off in a year or two. And that is not the case. (laughs) That just will not happen. So it's very, very entrenched. You know, we do live in a patriarchal society. There are inequities and discriminations that are just baked in that are literally subconscious women have them too like we all have unconscious bias or you know unconscious means you can kind of say oh well I can't help it it's unconscious but in fact it's you can help it and you should help it but the point is that we all have it so I guess to, to answer your question the gender equity project is I expect to be doing that for the rest of my working life It's not something that can be solved and it's not something that can be solved quickly. You can make small incremental progress, but then things come along and you think, oh, my God, we have not made any progress at all. We've just gone back 40 years and that happens relatively frequently. So I think the legislative environment, you know, advances like protection, the Equal Opportunity Act, for example, is an amazing piece of legislation, incredibly powerful like things like that really make a big difference. But then you start seeing those kinds of very progressive rights and structures and frameworks get wound back sometimes. So, for example, what the Commonwealth government was, was proposing with the Religious Discrimination Bill, which wasn't about gender, but it was about other forms of discrimination. And you think, oh, my God, you know, but just when you think that we're progressing towards a more equitable, egalitarian uh, inclusive, diverse society. Well, something like that happens and it just sets everything way back. And we have to expect that that will continue. 
And so we have to be ready to continue to fight the fight and be absolutely dogged. And, I mean, Justine and I are resigned to, like, talking about these things, making the case, being insistent, being polite, being the Trojan horse that sneaks into other conversations forever. And that's what we will continue to do, and I hope that's what everyone does. Yeah, yeah. I think something I've been curious about is just that feeling of jadedness because I believe yesterday from just listening to that conversation again, I think somebody talked about the angry feminist and being judicious about when to have those emotions in there as well as not having to it because for me, I sometimes get, how do I say, compassion fatigue because when you've got 10,000 cases that you want to be involved yourself it's where do you choose to lay your emotions and I would like to just get your opinions and your thoughts about that if that is allowed yeah yeah of course of course yeah well you know people have said similar things to me in relation to the well-being project which we haven't quite got to yet but you've got to look after yourself as a researcher and advocate as well and it can be very wearing to hear all these stories of people who have basically been pretty screwed over by systemic and structural issues But I must say, while I have endless compassion for that, it only fires me up more because one of my key values is fairness. And I think if a situation is unfair and someone else has been subjected to unfairness, it just makes me just so wild with fury because it's just wrong that 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 has happened to that person. So I will always be there to try and make that situation better. Um, if I can, using whatever power, privilege, status, prestige, position, influence that I might actually have at my disposal. So interestingly enough, yeah, while there are terrible stories and the Parler Project has really brought out terrible stories of people who, like I say, whose lives have been more or less derailed by inequities that they've encountered and that they have thought were their own fault, which is the even more insidious thing, because it wasn't their fault. You know, it was it was structural factors which led them that you know to have to leave architecture or derailed their career. Or so it's very satisfying when you are able to say to people, "It's not your fault. It's not your fault as an individual. It's a much larger systemic issue." And bring together communities of support, communities of interest, communities of practice, so that those people can see, "Well, it wasn't my fault." And it is possible to do good even just in supporting the people who've been sort of subjected to these terrible injustices yeah that's a lovely way of putting it as well I think I can relate to you about sometimes feeling very fired up as well but then it's that trying to step back and then find ways to offer help and support it's easy but at the same time it is quite difficult from just depending on your position and standpoint then you touched on the mental health looking after yourself then may I ask was it because of that that's where you started going into mental health research or was there another factor that catalyzed this procedure? Well there were many reasons it just seemed to me that there are a lot of commonalities between you know why women leave architecture for example and why men leave as well you know like gender equity questions and well-being questions are really closely articulated I think they affect women in particular ways but they also affect men clearly and palpably so it was a kind of natural progression like and also I mean it has to be said that our focus on gender equity is a bit of a kind of old-fashioned approach, really, because these days, you know, thinking about intersectionality, thinking about inclusion of diversity in terms of cultural diversity, different abilities, you know, the full spectrum of diverse 
groups, but also compounded forms of discrimination. So, for example, if you've got racism and sexism intersecting, well, that's particular for that person, let's say, and just looking at gender is actually quite a reductive way of doing it. So, you know, if we were very self-critical, which we frequently are, we would say, you know, we're not, we need to look at gender and race, gender and class, gender and cultural diversity all together. And it's, you can't just look at one because it really is like an intersection. But well-being is kind of useful in some regards because it is quite inclusive. Like it really does take in a whole range of different types of factors. And also, frankly, it's useful to move beyond a highly gendered topic because there are a lot of powerful male allies in the um, – I mean, there's a lot of powerful male allies looking for gender equity as well. But as soon as you start talking about well-being, you've got a lot of men who are willing to really stand up and strongly advocate for better working conditions in architecture for the well-being of all. And it's quite fascinating to see how, you know, from the profession, who's willing to stand up for those different types of issues. And how has that experience for you so far, just going through all of that – because I believe that not just the architecture profession itself and having you as a head of architecture back at Monash and then working with the students as well, how has that experience been for you in terms of doing your research and then seeing that atmosphere firsthand among students? Then, Yeah, well, I mean, I'm convinced there are problems with well-being in architecture, certainly among students without question. You know, I've been an academic for 20 years and, you know, I've seen it with my own eyes that students in architecture, students generally, yes, but also students in architecture are very, very stretched. So there are problems. There really are problems and they're pretty urgent and they need to be addressed. So what was missing really in that conversation was evidence that everyone thought there was a problem but there wasn't sufficient evidence to prove it. So putting together a research project that can provide that evidence is really super important because once you have data, you can prove the case and then the whole conversation moves on to okay we do have a problem what are we going to do about it rather than do we have a problem Uh, it was a circular conversation and had been going on for decades it really had so that enabled unsympathetic people let's say exploitative employers to say oh no 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 there's really no problem here there's no evidence of a problem therefore there's no problem but I don't think that's the case and I just wanted to move that conversation on, basically. Yeah, it makes sense because I think there's, again, going thinking back to your conversation with Ben Channon at the symposium in which you discussed about how, and also one of the audience responded with about you don't tell somebody with a broken leg to feel better by going on for the run. And I think that there is still ongoing prevalent issues with regards to mental well-being in that it is intangible and when you don't have something tangible then I think you need to make it tangible and so I'm guessing that's what the statistics and the numbers is apart from making the data tangible do you see yourself doing other ways or what other areas you're hoping to implement in order to provide this type of concrete evidence for everybody to see? Yeah, well, when we think about research, we talk about both quantitative research, which is to do with numbers, quantifying things, counting them up, uh, and qualitative research, which has to do with qualities, um, you know, which might be, you know, one person saying a particular thing rather than 2,000 people saying something. So, and, you know, I was always, have always been a qualitative researcher. I'm interested, well, really, my first love is language, actually. It's not numbers at all. And so I'm interested in individual stories and accounts of 
what life is like working in architecture. It's a very fascinating culture. I continue to find it a completely fascinating sort of, in many ways, very contradictory um, discipline and culture. And that's why I'm, you know, so dedicated to studying it because I think it's weird and wonderful and amazing. And, you know, it's a tight community as well. Like it's, you know, when we, Justine and I travel around the place talking to people from other professions, the accountants, the teachers, the you name it, engineers, and they're like, wow, you know, this is a very tight, well-defined, closely identified community that you architects have. And gosh, look what you're doing there. That's very interesting. So in terms of what comes next, we've still got lots of research to do in this project. We're doing a whole range of focus groups, which will be qualitative, and then we do more surveys further down the line. But the idea is that that project comes up with resources that are specifically useful to improve well-being in education but also in practice you know that are actually applied that are very carefully targeted and produced but you know not too long (laughs) the thing about academics is that we write things that are far too long and sometimes very dry you've got to be able to speak the language of the profession and meet the needs of the profession in order to try and make cultural change so that's what we're planning to do yeah I'm curious to see just as how the, as we talked about your early in terms of the gender equality topic and how other countries like internationally it's been taken on other models, then I guess something I wonder if what we're looking forward to is perhaps how it's going to be intersecting with other industries because as you talked about our industry architecture being quite tight-knit, I wonder how would you expect for it to grow and develop further on? Mm. We've just released a report on this major practitioner survey, wellbeing survey that we did last year, which is really significant by international standards. I mean, I'm not saying that to blow my own trumpet. It's just a fact that it's very rare that you've, in the architecture profession, we've had such large surveys which are so carefully constructed and which use what's called verified or validated measures to measure specific things like burnout or professional commitment or work-life balance, these kinds of things. So I haven't yet started to send this uh, work out internationally, but I expect that when I do, it will be taken up widely or at least it will be widely discussed because it proves things that have been also widely discussed in other contexts. For example, in the UK, the Architects Journal has been running this survey for many years and they've been you know, quite strident on the problems that they see in well-being in architecture. And our project just gives strength to the arm of that argument. Who knows whether it will result in another parlour or <laughs> the same thing. But And that kind of groundswell of like an organisation, I don't know, I suspect not. But it should be pretty high-impact research because it's, it hasn't been done before at this scale with this level of rigour. Yeah, I'm curious to see with how it will crack into other industries as well because I feel like probably because I am still quite within this architecture bubble, I think I've yet to expand myself into other industries beyond the design industry even in terms of seeing how it will impact because I think I feel like perhaps just from the gauge of our conversation, mental well-being is really an umbrella term for quite a lot of things just because we do use our emotions on a daily basis as well. A few things, a few more questions before I guess we wrap out our discussion today. What else would you like to do beyond mental well-being? Because I do know that you do love research and also the literacy of it as well. So do you foresee yourself 
going into any other areas as this is being solidified? Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, I've been doing some work with Liz Brogdon, who's a fantastic academic from the University of Queensland, on how architecture education needs to be completely retooled in order to prepare students for climate change biodiversity crisis. So that's a piece of research that's happening now. Once again, you know, you can see they're all very applied and based on kind of current problems. But that really, the climate and biodiversity crisis is like the big existential challenge. And in this survey that we did recently in that project, 95% of the respondents who were students and academics thought that architects had a role to play in addressing climate change. I think it's a linchpin kind of role. But I think at this stage, they're not... Students are not feeling like they learn what they need to learn or maybe not in the ways they need to learn it in order to be equipped to do that, to play that positive role. So the question is, you know, what needs to happen in architecture schools to, as I say, retool and rearrange ourselves also to upskill and develop existing professional practitioners? Because, you know, things are changing so fast that probably someone who graduated five years ago, some of their knowledge is already outdated so CPD, continuing professional development, upskilling, short courses, it has to be part of a cycle, what might be called a circular curriculum, of retraining ourselves to deal in this completely changed world and move towards a zero carbon economy. So that's one thing. I mean, I've got heaps of research ideas and some of them are, um, you know, more or less developed. But one thing that just comes up again and again and again, and I hear this from the profession constantly, it's this quantification question again. Like what we need is to quantify the value of design because how can we argue for the value of design if we can't put a dollar figure on it? And we all know that that's reductive and that the quality of design is not just about its value in dollar terms. But if that's what means something to you know government, developers, construction industry, if that's what we need to justify the value of our work and indeed to justify our very existences well, then that is really missing. So I'm slightly reluctant to take on that project because it's giant and difficult and complex and requires a whole lot of economists, basically. It doesn't need architects. Well, it does need architects. It needs real estate economists. It needs behavioural economics um, experts, land economists, social benefit people. So putting together a project like that, I really believe that could be a true game changer in terms of how architecture is valued in Australia. But do I have the energy to do that? <laughs> I'm not sure. Not right away. I mean, it's very demanding, these projects. But that is kind of on the agenda because really I'm interested in change, change for the better, to benefit people, planet. Less, I care less about the economy, but obviously if that happens as well, that's a happy accident. So that is that would be a big long-term thing. Yeah, lots of long-term goals to fix. I think if anything, a lot of these research and then advocacy, it is about how do we work with people who are reluctant to change? Because again, as we said, like sometimes there's a lot of regression, even though it's a bit of a one step forward and two steps back kind of scenario with a lot of these discussions. And I guess it comes down to how do we slowly feed those people into accepting those changes beyond seeing that quantitative means, but 
being able to see different types of ways to prove that evidence of some sort. So having said, to perhaps wrap up our conversation today, which again, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. What do you anticipate for the future? And then also, what do you hope the people who are listening today, what would you hope for them to take out for this conversation or look forward to in general? Um, Well, I think there's a lot to look forward to. You know, what did somebody say the other day that, oh gosh, I can't remember the quote, but it was something like, despair is a luxury we can't afford <laughs> so i mean i often feel quite despairing i must say not about gender equity or well-being but about climate change but i'm really trying not to give in to that despair because that's not we can't do that that's it's not an option we must fight for our world basically and so you know it's really necessary to be energized and to do that and for everybody to do what they can in whatever small way use whatever leverage they have or impact they can make to work towards that, which is the big challenge. You know, no gender equity on a dead planet. It's the bigger challenge. So that's one thing. That's what I feel I'm working hard on feeling optimistic about that. But I guess the other point would be, you know, traditional, let's say, canonical, let's say, patriarchal understandings of architecture have really privileged the work that architects do and have been very outward focused. It hasn't been about the people who make the work. It's been about the work itself. In formal terms, like, a, you know, people rhapsodizing over a particular kind of detail or whatever. That is of zero interest to me, zero. And I also find it very problematic when people are just looking at the production of architecture without looking at the conditions of production, the people behind who are actually making it happen. So this is one thing that just makes me wild with fury, even though I try very hard to keep it under wraps is when architects seem to believe, some architects seem to believe that you can't have quality work and well-being. You can't have them both. You've got to choose one or the other. And, of course, they're always going to choose quality work. I reject that utterly. Um, And I also reject the idea that the only thing architects should or could think about is the work to the exclusion of the people. So that would be one thing that is really important to look back at the organisation, the company, the people, their talents, their vulnerabilities in terms of what architecture produces and not just, you know, the way that corner comes together. It's like, oh, my God, if that's what architects are going to be focused on and trying to tell the world about, then the profession is doomed, frankly. So you've got to move on from that um, and have a bigger picture perspective. Yeah, I think for me, I would like to add to paraphrase one of the quotes from one of my favorite shows was that be where they say behind every painting, there is an artist. I'd like people to perhaps think about behind every architecture or building or whatever the design, there is a person behind it because they have put in a lot of time, thought and care into it. And it would be nice if we can appreciate that and celebrate that in some other way just perhaps a different type of acknowledgement would be nice I guess and also just perhaps acknowledging the team instead of just the name itself that brands onto the architecture and I think that's something that we can challenge in the future as well again thank you so much for your time and I hope you've enjoyed having this conversation as much as I have yeah 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 absolutely thanks it's been great 
This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guest in this episode, Naomi Stead from RMIT. Thank you so much for everything you've contributed to architecture education, the profession and every community group that you're actively involved in. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts hosted by modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy, and the Imagine production team was Kimberly Huey, Hilary Duff, and Max Legal White. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.